Let's sing and swing. Evening visit with Mrs. Franklin D. Roosevelt. Two o'clock on Thursday afternoon in Manila. And now we bring you Forbidden Diary, the true World War II story of Natalie Crowder, based on her secret journal written from a Japanese prison camp in the Philippines. Episode 13, Better and Lesser Angels. Previously on Forbidden Diary. August 7, 1942. It's been a week since the tragic confirmation of Rufus Gray's death. He was one of the missionaries detained during our first month at Camp Hay. I bet you Walter Cushing got under the Jap skin. He was a miner up in Abra before he became a guerrilla. Did you know that? October 27, 1942. The guerrilla activity has lessened these past few days, and somehow life seems to be back to the way it was. But for how long, we all ask. And now, Episode 13. October 30, 1942. I turned 44 today. For my birthday breakfast, Jerry worked all yesterday morning to present me with a two-pound tin of rich nut fudge using peanuts that Beatty shelled. Nita sent a huge bag of food with happy birthday written on the front of it, and a big surprise on the truck sent me into a final daze. From Carl and the others living in town, there was a big box holding a chocolate cake, a precious roll of toilet paper, and a can of milk. June and Beatty drank their first big glass of milk in six months as I cut my cake into 20 pieces to share with people who had been good to us. We hummed, then felt emboldened, and sang God Bless America. November 4, 1942. Our nerves have come a long way since last month. This morning, we ate Jerry's scrambled eggs and tripe in the cook shed undisturbed by the sounds of two full-sized rifle shots and the nasty rip of machine guns, saying it was target practice on the emplacement below. November 6, 1942. Word-of-mouth reports authentic news of a big victory in Egypt. Rommel in flight and 10,000 Germans captured. Over a million Allied troops and supplies there. And as for local news... The Camp Homes Daily News headlined that a bale of toilet paper the committee had bought from our food money had finally arrived. November 7, 1942. Bad news from town. Seven missionaries were jailed in Baguio last week, including Carl. After talking with Herb during Woodcrew up on the mountain, Jerry's convinced that the Kempeitai is interrogating them. No one's heard a word about them. Have you, Jim? No, not yet. What was jail like, Herb? Two cups of rice and two cups of water a day, if you're lucky. There's a toilet pail in the cell, so the air is bad. And there's no sunlight. Only vent holes coming out of a low ceiling. I bet Carl's being interrogated because of his connections with the Chinese language school. Yeah. With all of the guerrilla activity, they probably think he's a spy. 
You don't think he knows anything, do you? I don't think it matters, Jim. They'll still give him the water cure. What exactly is that? They, um, strap your legs and upper body to a chair and lay you back on the floor. And they force you to drink water until you start having stomach convulsions and your stomach bloats. And when you think the pain can't get any worse, the interrogator jumps on your belly. God, is that what killed Rufus Gray? Yes. He was barely alive when they took him to Notre Dame Hospital. Docs said he died of ruptured intestines. His wife sure doesn't need to hear that. I'm sure she knows. Why'd they single out Rufus? Who knows? Maybe they thought he'd been too friendly with the Chinese because he was a student at the language school. You want to know the really crazy thing? The Kempeitai's interrogators barely speak English and ask the wrong questions. That's insane. Yeah, tortured and murdered for nothing. November 12, 1942. At about 7 p.m., a truck drove into camp with the seven jailed missionaries, including Carl. All were thin and unkempt with 12-day beards. November 15, 1942. Yesterday, 172 new people arrived, many who have never been interned before. Poor Dr. Dean has the thankless task of trying to make adjustments in the barracks to accommodate them. This time, I've got dibs on the corner. Who crowned you, Queen Doris? This is none of your beeswax, Diane. Oh, good lord. Please, not this again. All right, all right. What's all this rhubarb about? I'm not taking my fence down. Look, Mrs. Schultz, we've got over a hundred women and children to squeeze into this barracks, and everyone's gonna have to lose an inch or two to make space. But that's the way the cookie crumbles, Doris. Enid, all of the beds have to be shoved against the barracks wall to fit everyone. And uh, I, I need to talk with you. Okay. Privately, in your family's room. What is it? You're going to have to give up this private room. And Arthur's got to move to the men's barracks. Now wait just a minute. No, you and your daughter are next to the supplies. Best I've got. Well, we at least want a better location. Sorry, no can do. Well, hardy har har. Did you see Arthur and Enid last night? She had to stick her head out the window to talk to her husband like the rest of us. I had a good chuckle watching him stand below the window last night calling for her. Serves him right. Arthur's been a good egg about it. Well, y'all can stop gloating because Arthur's moving back. Right, Miss McKim? It's true. The guards told me that Hayakawa couldn't find Arthur, so he's making him return to the women's barrack. Well, if Enid gets her husband back, then I want my fence. November 17, 1942. The new arrivals told us what's been going on in Baguio since the guerrillas' insurgency. They said that every inch of ground has been dug up for valuables and houses ransacked and burned to the ground. But they also told resistance stories from Manila and the lowlands, 
And word of mouth says there is a new battle in the Solomons, about 500 ships, the biggest armada in history. America is finally fighting back. Does this mean that the Philippines will be liberated soon? I think it's going to happen, Jorge. You know, with Guadalcanal and all. I heard that when the U.S. comes back in, the Japanese are going to gather in a huge building and surrender to the Americans. Oh? What do you two know? Well, if you were Japanese, who would you surrender to? After all they've done to us? It sure wouldn't be Filipinos. People have been taken off the street, tortured, and never seen again. It's been worse since the guerrillas. They've forced us to watch public executions in the market. Did you see that poster blaming last month's fighting on Americans? What? They didn't give us any credit? I ripped it off the wall. Oh, Jorge. Why do you do things like that? Here. Read where it talks about the guerrilla fighting. Where? Here. Halfway down. It only talks about America. See, it says here, Those U.S. armed forces who are giving trouble and fear to the public of Baguio are not only the enemies of the Japanese Imperial Army, but also your bitter enemy. No, the part about us siding with the guerrillas. Where it says, Filipinos should leave this trouble in the hands of the Japanese Imperial Army? No, Nida. Where it says it's a pity there are many skunks defending the U.S. and Baguio and believing American propaganda such as coming to your aid. Did you not hear the mighty Japanese Air Force and Navy, which never lost a single battle? Well, they didn't do too good at Guadalcanal. What a bunch of baloney. Listen to this, Ismael. You, inhabitants of Baguio, Judge well and cooperate with the Japanese Imperial Army to make this famous Baguio a progressive city. Or what? That's what I want to know. Or you'll end up like Walter Cushing. That's what? I'd sure like to know who ratted on him. How do you know anyone did? The Japanese shot him while he was eating breakfast. No, that's not what happened. The Japanese caught him taking black market U.S. weapons to Isabella province for the resistance fighters. There was a shootout and Cushing saved his last bullet for himself. That didn't happen. He was staying at the Filipino landowner's house. I bet that trader who turned him in got a big reward. I don't see how any Filipino could do it. Not everyone thinks the same, Jorge. My auntie seen young Filipino boys in uniform go stepping. People are listening to that fifth column, Vargas. Remember what he said before the war about claiming the rising sun of Japan to light the dawn of Asia? Well, it sure worked out for the rich people. Did you hear about the Japanese? They let them draw straws for the businesses downtown? Nothing's changed. The same wealthy bastards get everything. Ismael, watch your language. The girls can hear you from upstairs. November 18, 1942. 
According to word of mouth, Eisenhower has been appointed to top general in Europe, and the Germans have given up attacking Stalingrad and are retreating. Back here in camp, Hayakawa declared that there will be no more soap, only ashes, because that is what they use in Japan. Countless fixations. November 24, 1942. The school's Thanksgiving performance showed teachers' hard work and pupils' ability to learn in chaos. Two dining tables were put together for the stage, and two blackboards served as a backdrop. June was Puritan Priscilla in a dressing gown costume, formerly a cassock at Brent School, with wide paper cuffs. Beedy, in his long trousers, scrubbed clean by himself, took part in a question group which ended with the final history quotation, America is waiting for you. We almost wept, for we are waiting for America. November 26, 1942 A minor riot ensued over decorating the dining hall for Thanksgiving. Some are furious because they were not asked first. Others because they think the British should not be included in an American celebration. (laughs) So there are even international complications as nationalism dies hard, even in this jumble. Nita sent a roast chicken for Thanksgiving, and Mrs. Wiley received eggs from her housekeeper after all these months. She could hardly speak, almost wept. They're alive, she said, as we all say each week when a bag arrives from Nida. November 29, 1942 We saw a guard drive off with a bayonet in his car today. An hour later, without any warning of newcomers, he returned with five forlorn, gaunt, and possessionless American civilians. As they ate, everyone crowded around them, faces pressed against every screen, hungry to hear any news. Thank you so much. We haven't had a real meal in days. How long were you living in the hills? Since the uh, Japanese invaded. Uh, 11 months? Something like that? Um, yeah, that sounds right. Up near Itogan Mine. <coughs> we were doing fine until the Japanese put out a 100 peso reward for each of us. They just walked in on us without warning. And you said there were others? Yes, a Filipino doctor and his, uh, his American wife. She was a nurse. Such a pretty little thing. The, uh, doctor's wife and sister were shot in the abdomen. Both died. But not before they watched the doctor being led away to be beaten. (coughs) When we got to Baguio, the Japanese questioned us about Mrs. Kluge. The uh, Japanese want to use her as a hostage for her gorilla husband. The price on him's high. What happened to the doctor? He was tied up for hours and spent 11 days in an 8 by 3 foot jail cell. He only got two bowls of rice and two glasses of water a day. Yeah, yeah, that's what others have told us about the jail. The Japanese told us that 13 others like us had gone to the U.S. and we'd probably go too. Yeah, well, that was a lot of banana oil. Do you know where the doctor is now? Yeah, he's living in Baguio with his young daughter. She was shot, but survived. He feels responsible for his wife and sister, and says that he wants to die. They made him pay for his loyalty to Americans. 
The Japanese are going around the country burning villages and torturing people for information. The Igorots and Filipinos are terrified. December 4, 1942. After several days of watching and trailing Mr. Menzies, the guards finally found a five-gallon can and four bottles of gin cached in the grass near a cottage. The private, Miss McKim, and our liaison man were seen with Mr. Menzies. The private wants to know where you got the gin, Mr. Menzies. Tell him I don't know anything about it. I wish it was mine. An hour later, from our windows, we watched Mr. Menzies standing at the guardhouse, taking it. About eight guards stood around him, and before our eyes, two beat him with bamboo sticks, legs, back, head, anywhere it fell. Finally, they closed in, made him lie on the ground, and beat him with army belts, golf club, baseball bats, anything at hand, until he was unconscious. His screams at the last were horrible to hear. It was degrading to see nauseating to witness, and the children watched. He was taken to the hospital, and no bones were broken. Evidently, he'd been warned two days ago. Our enemy seems to have taken a sudden interest in alcohol consumption, but some think it's just an excuse to go through our things and find communication with gorillas. Some say a note found in Mr. Menzies' cash was the chief reason for the interrogation and torture, and that the guards also beat up the shopwoman who sells goods to us. But this we did not see. As if the beating wasn't enough, Hayakawa and four guards also went to the hospital to see Mr. Menzies, one carrying a baseball bat with a black tassel on it. I'll never be able to look at a bat with equanimity again. December 5, 1942. More co-mingling rules from Hayakawa were posted in the camp newsletter today. This is ridiculous. You talk with Hayakawa every day, Miss McKim. I do, but I think he's just a figurehead, Mrs. Crowder. The pigs have more commingling rights than we do. Did you guys see Hayakawa drive into camp with a pig in the back seat of his car? Evidently, Mr. Hayakawa wants to mate the boar with our sow. <laughs> that smelly creature. I think it's a trial marriage. <laughs> Do you remember when the sow dug out of her pen and tore all over the camp looking for a mate? Well, she's got a husband now. Mr. Hayako is hoping for piglets. At least married couples can walk together on the parade ground on Sundays. We're so much better off here in the mountains. How do you figure that, Natalie? Well, number one, it's cooler. And I hear that the prisoners in Santo Tomas and Manila run the gamut from business executives to Shanghai prostitutes. We're a much more homogeneous group. Somehow, I'm not feeling very grateful. Well, I sure wouldn't want to be living in Manila in the summer. Me neither. Do you know what the guards call me? No. Honorable aunt. When they first heard me speak Japanese, you should have seen the looks on their faces. They're always so animated when you talk with them. Oh, they just miss hearing their own language. One told me that I have a whole barrack to talk with, and he has no one. They're just lonely, bored, and homesick. Well, we're malnourished, overcrowded, and homesick. All thanks to them, I might add. Well, maybe they shouldn't beat people. I don't think the guards have a choice. 
They know how fast they'd be on the receiving end of a beating if they didn't follow orders. Well, some of them seem to take great pleasure in it. We're all in a horrible situation. That's an understatement. We won't be friendly, and they can't, because they'd be accused of fraternization. So they watch us poke about and make petty rules to vent their frustrations. Well, no matter what you have to say about the guards, they sure like children. Japanese are as varied as Americans. Mr. Hayako has admitted to me that he doesn't like driving to Baguio at night. Because of the gorillas? Yes. It must be tough to wonder each night if your head will be on in the morning. Well, it's always good to know your enemy. Tis indeed. You have to know people's values before you can appeal to them. Camp Holmes Daily News. Matters of public and private concern at the present juncture include such diverse affairs as wondering what to give one's wife, children, or husband for Christmas, and how to get the materials to make it by hook or crook. December 15, 1942. Everyone's looking forward to Christmas with delight instead of gloom. Daphne, our resident artist, is making posters and signs, all sorts of Christmas things for camp. The wood crew will bring down a large tree, for which Daphne and her helpers have drawn and colored tall red paper candles to set against the pine branches in the dining room. Everyone is busy making gifts in secret. Jerry's constructing a bamboo trowel for Beatty, who's developed a vast enthusiasm for farming. Others carve and paint buttons out of coconut and bamboo. Doll blankets are being sewed, and beds out of boxes are being fashioned. Only occasionally do Jerry and I let ourselves think of the two grandmothers in America, and how they are faring in health and finance. This way could lie madness. Even Jerry admitted that he has to stop his thoughts because he worried one night until the early hours. December 19, 1942. Our dinner conversation with Carl tonight reminded us of how glad we are that he's back living in camp. Oh, you don't believe me, Natalie? It must have taken 20 trips to move your stuff. Oh, There couldn't have been that many. I couldn't count all of the shoes. And Natalie only wears three of them, even before the war. Now, smuggling that sewing machine into camp was a little nerve-wracking. I'll say. You really took a risk, Carl. God was watching out for me on that one. Don't you miss living in Baguio? No, June, not really. Unless you have an excuse to be somewhere, like a doctor, you're pretty much stuck in your house. Got pretty lonely. That's exactly what I've heard from just about everyone. And it's hard to give a sermon to four walls. Yeah, I miss Sundays a lot, and really hated being a burden. My sponsors never complained, but you know what Benjamin Franklin said about fish and guests. What? Both stink after the third day. You can stay with us forever. We wouldn't mind. Well, that's very kind of you two. You couldn't even go to town? Not very often. You just don't see Americans walking around. I still miss Baggio and Nita. Me too. We all do. But we're better off where we are. And you don't want to miss Christmas here. I sure don't. Lots of fun stuff going on. I know Beatty's looking forward to singing in the Christmas choir. He didn't even sign up, Daddy. 
I have cows to look after. You just don't want to sing in the choir. Really? I'm shocked. Cows are a lot more important than singing. December 21, 1942. Hazel went to Baguio yesterday and had a grand time buying two oranges apiece for 150 children, two sacks of peanuts, over a thousand pieces of candy, and about 300 cookies. She said cloth materials are sky high and saw young Filipino boys in uniform goose stepping at a drill. Hazel confirmed that Carl was right about the scarcity of Americans in Baguio. Oh yes, Carl was right. When I was walking on Session Street, a child pointed at me and said, Oh, Mama, look, there's a real white lady. But the Filipinos and Igorots and Chinese were all so kind. I got lots of smiles in the market and shops. Oh, Hazel, I miss them all. Me too. Did you see Carl pushing that cart full of grapefruit and chickens around the camp? <laughs> That's an odd combination. What was all that about? He was delivering Christmas gifts from the Evangelical Church in Baguio. But they can't afford to do that. Christmas always brings out people's better angels. December 23rd, 1942. The delivery truck has been coming in crammed with extra bags, bundles, and boxes. Today, the overflow had to be tied to the roof. People on the outside have been so generous. But despite all of the gifts and decorations, I'm tired and haven't found the Christmas spirit. I want to hear from home, real give and take, communication again with all it means. I want to say, oh, that looks like a U.S. Marine. But I'll get none of it. So, back to my mop and pail. December 24, 1942. Christmas Eve. Outside the dining hall this morning, Daphne's red hair hovered over the trimming of the tree, which she topped with a glittering Christmas fairy, according to the English custom. She'd already worked her magic in the dining room, with huge pine wreaths and arches with green and red festoons. In every direction there is decorating, as people fix up their own small trees, wreaths, and spaces. I spent an hour or two wrapping up our few gifts in saved paper and string. And Jerry brought me a beautiful spray of mountain holly, with dark shining leaves and yellow whirls of delicate flowers. For you, darling. Merry Christmas, honey. Oh, Jerry, it's beautiful. Just like you, shining and full of thorns. Terry never gives me a real compliment without a sting in the tail, and we always laugh over it. In the afternoon, we watched the school's Christmas pageant and sang Peace on Earth, Goodwill Towards Men as trucks, geared and loaded for war, roared up the trail below us just to remind us of where we are and why. One of the schoolchildren recited a poem his mother wrote that taught us parents a lesson.
always concentration. Life used to be so different. My ama looked after me. She watched just what I ate and drank. I was good as good could be. A whole big house was called our home. It really was quite fine. But in my room I played alone. I felt most awfully blue. Then one day suddenly all was changed. We left the place called home and came here with lots of folks, but my ama didn't come. For now, I never play alone. There's lots of kids in here. We run around all over camp. We play with sticks and stones. We ride the garbage wagon and hunt out cans and bones. And now my mother mends my clothes. They are they're getting kind of worn, worn, but she keeps right on patching every little place that's that's torn. And when I'm feeling sick at times, it's mother soothes my head. Now I know she loves me more than Alma ever did. It seems that some don't like it here. They want to go away. They talk of home and good old days. They want to go and stay. So when I go to bed at night, I tightly close my eyes and fold my hands and say a prayer to God. Up in the skies, dear God, you know I love you. You give both joy and bliss. So if in turn you love me, dear God, make home like this. Special diets did not linger over their rice at second meal, so I got away early from waitressing to join Jerry, the kids, and friends at the parade ground. As we feasted on succulent roast pork and our long-saved can of cranberry jelly, a full moon came up silver over a cloud bank and sent a rainbow halo above its rising. In the evening, a bright star shone above the grassy bank where everyone sat very still, listening to the choir in the distance and looking down on the simple manger of bamboo frame covered with pine boughs. June played Mary, sitting quietly beside the cradle, and a soft blue light illuminated where the baby lay. Relatives and friends are visiting tomorrow, but only if they're Filipino. The high command said all could come, but Mr. Nagatomi said, no, not Americans, only Filipinos. Fathers will see their children for the first time in a year, and one, his eight-month-old infant, for the first time. But it will be at a distance, as visitors are required to stay by the guardhouse on the other side of the road, and prisoners are not allowed to cross. I've been desperately, unutterably, unbearably homesick, and I don't think I could bear it if Nita and her family came tomorrow. 
Christmas Day, Camp Holmes, 1942. At five, the choir woke us singing Midnight Clear, Herald Angels, Joy to the World and other hymns. It was beautiful to lie listening in the dark. When we met Jerry for coffee at the kitchen counter at six, Peg gifted us a coffee cake to go with it. Then we went outside to open our Christmas gifts in the grey dawn, with a huge moon setting before us, and the stars lingering clearer than ever. Ooh! Look! I got a shovel and seeds for my garden! I'm gonna grow parsley, carrots, and celery! Daddy made you the trowel. Thank you, Daddy. What did the O'Neills send from Manila? I got some socks and toilet soap. I got a shirt. See the paper doll and dresses Mrs. Lander gave me? They're beautiful. She painted all of them herself. She also gave me fabric squares to sew into a quilt. You'll need to write her a thank you note. Mommy, Daddy, open my card. Okay. Well now, will you look at this? I drew Lally and Fluffy on the front. It says, Remember the cat and dog from Beady Crowder. May we open up Nita's gifts? Yes, you may. Daddy, show Mommy my card. It looks just like Lally and Fluffy. Oh, Mommy, Nita made me a dress. <gasps> oh, it's... Darling. I'm going to go put it on. Natalie, here's your gift from Nita. Look at the string she used to tie it off with. Boy, she sure knows you. Oh, my goodness. See, it's marked Boston Gardening Company, Waban, Massachusetts. That's the string I saved from a package Mums sent last year. Which goes to show you that you can never stop a New Englander from hoarding string. <laughs> never. Look at these washcloths. Nita's girls must have knitted them. I wish we could send them something. I'm sure they know we can't, Petey. At least we know they're keeping us in their memory. We must be almost myths after a year. Look, everyone! Isn't it a beautiful dress? Oh! Spin around! Oh! You look like a million bucks, honorable daughter. Are Nita and Ismail coming to visit us today? I wouldn't count on it, Beady. Hey, here's one last gift. That's from all of us to you, Daddy. Open it! Hmm, I wonder what this could be. We all sewed it. Don't give it away! A tie. I'll be the most professional-looking garbage man in Camp Holmes. Oh, Daddy, you're supposed to wear it to church. And I'm gonna do just that. Thanks, guys. It's really swell. Christmas breakfast was a rush of noise and excitement. Simplicity being keynote, candles centered the tables with long red streamers holding gilt and silver ornaments. As I took in the decorations... Marvin beamed as he handed me a bag of cookies labeled Merry Christmas to my waitress. I treasure that moment. We had cocoa with milk and sugar, coffee, fried egg and bacon, and banana bread. Such a treat after only rice and water for a week. 
As we ate, the Japanese treated us to another goose-step drill. On our way out to church, June received two oranges, peanuts, cookies, and candies from friends, and I got a piece of Igorot cloth. With so many missionaries and denominations, there were multiple services. We went to Carl's, his short sermon, as sincere and big as he himself, not narrow and bigoted, but including everyone. After services, the guards let Santa Claus visit the children, who appeared with a black-clad, nimble figure, which is a Filipino custom we'd never seen before. As Santa and his helpers strolled from behind the shop, the children let go in one loud squeal and ran across the parade grounds to meet them. A charming sight. There were 150 gifts of every description, the product of hard work at the shop, Daphne's art, and the women who sewed for weeks. The children are now asleep, clutching adorable handmade dolls, horses, clowns, thoroughly happy. Our guards tramp by about every 15 minutes, turning lights on beds, probably looking for contraband. But people are sleeping soundly, tired from the day's activities. Despite all of the Christmas cheer, I still can't shake off the blues. This is the first time homesickness has made inroads on me, and I must face it to dissipate it. December 28, 1942. The Japanese brought into camp a businessman from Boggio. Once worth thousands, he was unrecognizable and looked like a tramp. He told us about his time in jail, of men having to crouch, not allowed to stretch their legs out, for if they did, their legs were beaten with broomsticks, his included. He voiced the general feeling of many old-timers and Filipinos, that America let the Philippines down. They feel bitter over the young, untrained boys who were so terribly slaughtered in the first week because of our strategic withdrawals. He said that Leong Shank, a prominent grocer in Baguio, died quietly on the outside. His family is still in hiding. December 29, 1942. After Christmas, most of camp was sick from the rich Christmas food our bodies can no longer handle. Beatty's reaction was so severe that we took him to see Dr. Hall at the camp hospital. We thought he was just overwhelmed with all the rich food like everyone else. Well, it's probably more than that. Looks like he might have dysentery. His symptoms look more like bacillary dysentery than amoebic. Is that good or bad? Neither. We just treat them differently. Let's see what the test results show. In the meantime, I want him to stay here for observation. That sounds serious. It's just a precaution, Natalie. I don't want him to get any more run down or expose others. If he has dysentery. Oh, my poor Beatty. I thought we were over worrying about dysentery. Au contraire. If things don't change, we're always going to have dysentery problems. Look at this camp. We're living in 18th century sanitation conditions. Malnutrition and vitamin deficiencies have compromised everyone's health. I've got patients whose teeth are crumbling. I'm telling you, 1943's got to be better than 1942. Or we're not going to make it. This concludes Episode 13. Be sure to tune in for the next episode of Forbidden Diary. The true World War II story of Natalie Crowder, based on her secret journal written from a Japanese prison camp in the Philippines. <laughs>